You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to his sermon entitled, Take Me to the River, Drop Me in the Water, recorded on January 14th, 2018. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, hello! Hello! I hope everyone is doing well this beautiful uh, winter. The days are getting longer every day. Does that encourage some of you who uh, don't like the darkness? Every day you get a few more minutes of sunlight. It just happens to be covered with ice and snow and sleet and all that stuff, but it's there. Thinking of ice and snow, this is our baptism sermon. Take me to the river and drop me to the water. Yes, someone knows the rock and roll song there. I'm going to start actually though with a, with a verse that has nothing to do with water directly. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that lest anyone may boast. Now that I didn't read it from the Bible, I memorized it, and I don't even know if that's two or three translations put together. I have heard that verse so many times since I first came to know Jesus. Everyone loves that verse um, because it has within it um, the idea of grace, By grace you've been saved through faith. You see, we're Protestants, and we want to make sure everyone understands that you're not saved by being good. Sometimes I think we take it way too far. We, we, you know, we're just, we we can say, you can't even do anything good, and I don't think that's true. I think you can do things good. Um, Anyone can do a good thing. Even an unbeliever can do a good thing, but you cannot take the stain off your soul yourself. It is grace. It's a free gift. You receive it by faith and not by works. That's the distinction that makes us Protestants. That's what makes you a Protestant if you're a member of this church. Whether you knew it or not, we believe that salvation is by faith and it is through grace. Grace means free. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Uh, That's normally, you can add in when when preaching that. There used to be a fiery preacher my wife and I used to love one of Buttercup fame, for those of you who remember that, um, who used to just shout out to us, there's none righteous, no, not one. And he would just get on us about that and always remind us just what lousy, disgusting sinners we really were. <laughs> he forgot to remind us at times that we got saved, but that was okay. He was still, we get saved again. He would preach the gospel so often and with such power, you'd get saved eight times. <laughs> you just keep getting saved. But you know what? I'd rather err on the side of preaching grace too much than not enough, because salvation is free, and, and God gets the glory. One, another way I heard it as a new Christian was it used to be said like this, uh, you owed a debt, you could not pay, he paid a debt, he did not owe. Any of you ever heard that one before? There's even a song, and I'm not going to sing it, I sang not long ago, and it went out to all the campuses, and I, I, I regretted that. And so I'm not going to sing that song, but that, that's a good way to put it. You owed a debt. You couldn't pay. You couldn't make yourself righteous. But he paid a debt. He bought us with his blood by dying on a cross. He ransomed us. Now, why does that matter? Because then who gets the credit for my salvation? God does. I can't boast before God. I can't say, look how good I am. God had to save me. Who wouldn't save this holy man? I couldn't say that. You can't say that. No one can say that in the history of the world, including people who you think could say that. No one's good enough, except Jesus Christ himself. God initiated my salvation. 
I was not going towards him. I was going away from him. He woke me up. He gave me the gospel. He gave me faith as a gift. And then he saved me. And now I am saved. And to him be all the glory. Has everyone got that? Okay. Sometimes you don't get any farther in the salvation message than that. And don't realize that salvation is ongoing. Yeah, you get saved in kind of a permanent way. And you will be saved when the Lord returns and you get your new body and live forever. But in between those two, there is a process of continually getting saved. Theological word for that is sanctification. You can use that. I don't care if you use it or not. But if you hear someone say it, that's what they mean. Sanctification is this fancy way of saying be made holy. It's just being a Christian every day involves salvation every day in some way. And we need to deal with this because a question every Christian has to face, either he comes up with it himself or herself or is asked it by someone who's a skeptic. And it's this, if all our sins are taken away by Jesus and he gets all the credit, and if we're justified by grace through faith alone, not by our own works, then what stops a Christians from continuing to sin whenever they please? Because he's going to forgive it anyway. If he forgives all your sins, past, present, and future... Why not just, they ask, go rob a bank? And that's always the favorite sin of people who are critics. Is they think, if I wasn't saved, I'd, I used to be an adult and not saved. And I never once even thought about robbing a bank. But for some reason, people think if you become a Christian, that's the one thing you'd do if you were free to sin. And that's not the thing I'd do. I'd rob something easier. <laughs> Banks have security and security guards and cameras. and There's got to be something easier. The, you know, the ice cream man might be in trouble, but not the bank. But it's still a good question. Why should we behave if we're forgiven anyway? There are three main theological camps that answer this within Protestantism, within Christian Christianity. One is called antinomianism as an extreme. Antinome, gnome for law. It means since there is no law anymore, we've done away with the law, that means we're completely liberated and that can lead to license. In other words, I'll just do whatever I want because Jesus is going to forgive me. I just live in a perpetual state of forgiveness from him. So I am going to rob that bank and I am going to do whatever I want to do is is the extreme that comes there. No law. Christian's not concerned about sin. The other extreme is perfectionism. And this isn't like the perfectionist who, you know, perfectionists are. They got to get everything in a row. and Not like that. Not the psychological perfectionism. The theological perfectionism means you'll get to a point in your Christian life where you no longer sin volitionally. You never choose to sin again. This is sometimes called the holiness movement, um, and, and and it normally involves a second or third experience with the Holy Spirit. So you get saved, and then the Holy Spirit brings some sort of amazing experience into your life months or years later, and then you don't sin anymore. Well, that solves things too if you just don't sin anymore. In between those two poles are everything you can imagine, right? From people just generally walking around thinking, I'm a worm, I sin every moment in word, thought, and deed, and I need to confess my sin to God. Well, what'd you do? I don't know, but I'm such a worm, I must have done something. To maybe the victorious Christian life view, which says, I am a worm, but I should have consistent victory over sin as a Christian, though I am not perfect. And everything in between. Um, 
as you can see, since there's two poles and a lot of positions in between, this is a complex question. And I'm not going to answer this question for you today. You need to wrestle with it yourself if you haven't and realize that there are some gray areas that no one can answer and I'm not going to try. But one thing I've learned, when you're studying a difficult doctrine, doctrine is the religious word for a teaching, I don't know why we say doctrine and not teaching, but we do. If you're studying a difficult teaching, and you, you, you can't get mad because you can't button it all down. If you get your theology all buttoned down, then you'll become, you'll become a cop. <laughs> and every Christian who doesn't get it right, you're going to throw in jail. And that's called dogmatism, getting all these theological terms today. So we don't want that. You're just going to have to learn to live with some ambiguity. But that doesn't mean you're hopeless. What I've learned is that we need to train ourselves to observe truths that we can be certain of, even if we can't get every answer. So I'm going to give you three certain true principles. When I say certain, I'd say, and I'm not going to take the time to prove them because believe it or not, this isn't directly what this sermon's about. So why are you saying it? You'll see. But I do want to give you at least three principles of sanctification that I think I could easily defend from Scripture. Number one, true believers are forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, by the work of Jesus on the cross, received by grace through faith. There'll be some who might disagree, but uh, he's a good, good father. He doesn't kick out his children. The, The power of the blood of Christ is enough for all the sins I did in the past and all the sins I will do in the future. I received the same grace that saved me the first time I got saved is the grace I get every time, and so with you. If you're a true believer, put that true believer in there. Not everyone who comes to Christ sticks with Christ because not all are true believers. Uh, People like to argue, once saved, always saved. If you don't know that argument, I'm not going to open that up. But if you do, I'd say once saved, always saved, if saved. Yeah, (laughs) if you are. I mean, you can't always tell. Second, true Christians are given the Spirit of God who leads them to do good and not evil. To be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit. You do not need a second experience to get the Holy Spirit, as some teach. I would disagree with that. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. And since you have the Spirit in Christ, you have uh, the strongest force imaginable within you, urging you and leading you towards doing good and not robbing banks. Third is the Bible speaks of Christian behavior not as a matter of obeying the law. In other words, the antinomians aren't completely wrong. They're wrong, but they're not completely wrong. There is law, but we do not behave by trying to obey the law. Rather, the New Testament speaks of Christian behavior as being dead to yourself and alive to Christ. And that's what gets us to our main point today. Why do I bring up the question of sanctification? To talk about baptism. This is a sermon on baptism. How many do we get? Not many. I've never preached that many in my life. What does baptism mean? Why do we do this thing? Well, why we do it is, as far as we can see in the scripture, Jesus only ever gave us two religious rituals that we're to do. If you want a religion with lots and lots of rituals, Protestant Christianity ain't it. Although sometimes we invent new ones, like, uh, what is that? Uh, 
that candle, the four candles at Christmas time, what do we call that? The Advent candle. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. Some churches, if you don't do that, you're going to hell. <laughs> Not this one. <laughs> um, you have to sing the doxology after taking the offering. Some people think that's in there, right? No, that's not in there. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. If you have a church service and you don't do that, you're in trouble. No, no, no. There's only two. And I know you can guess what they are. One we call the Lord's Supper and one we call baptism. Both of them speak. Both those rituals say something. Like, when I was a pastor at First Baptist Church in Union, we did the unity, or the, what do you call it, the Advent candle every, every, every stinking Christmas. And I never could remember what it meant. I would study, so I knew what it meant. I don't know what those, I still don't know what those candles mean. If I see four candles, I just want to sing happy birthday, blow it out, and eat cake. I, uh, but baptism and the Lord's Supper both speak. First Corinthians 11 says that the Lord's Supper declares the Lord's death until he comes. It's preaching the gospel. Of the body and the blood. Well, baptism speaks also. So to answer the question of what is baptism, normally we go towards the practical. Well, it's a symbol and you've got to do it. Well, we'll hit the practical at the end. It won't take long. I think the theological is more important. You only do it once. You do the Lord's Supper as often as you do it in remembrance of him. Baptism, it's a one-time deal. It's like getting married. Well, you know, all things being equal, it's a one-time deal. Romans 6, 1 to 4. That's our text for today. If you have your Bible, open it up. If you have your smartphone, open it up. For you people who've been secretly talking on Facebook, you can bring it. You're out of the shame now. You can just talk on Facebook, and we'll all think you're looking at your Bible. Now's your time. Romans 6, 1 to 4. What should we say then, says Paul? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's talking about sanctification, isn't he? Not baptism. Who do you think I copied from? (laughs) That's why I started with sanctification. What are we to say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Since the greatness of my sin shows the greatness of the forgiveness of God, maybe I should just keep sinning. He says, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, so we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul attacks the question of sin and grace right here. He, he answers the skeptic's question. Why don't you just go rob a bank since you're forgiven anyway? Should we not sin that grace may abound? But he uses baptism as his illustration. By doing this, he gives us the theological meaning of baptism. So let's just unpack it. It shouldn't take long. We're going to stick very close to what this says. He says, should we continue to sin so grace may abound? Why that question? Because it's amazing that God's grace is so great, right? Amazing grace, we call it. Amazing grace is not in the Bible. Grace is not amazing part. But Amazing Grace is probably the most popular song in the history of the world, not called Happy Birthday. Amazing Grace is a much better song than Happy Birthday. In fact, Happy Birthday itself is a boring song, and I'm kind of tired of it. But it's better than the Advent candles, so we have a hierarchy going. Um, Amazing Grace. People love that song. People who don't love Jesus will stop, listen to Amazing Grace, and cry. (laughs) Um, I I was once in a... um, 
in a place that serves beer, and the, the people singing, there's a little threesome up there, and they were just singing simple cover songs until somebody asked for them to sing Amazing Grace. And the girl, Acapulco, that means no instruments, sang <laughs> Amazing Grace. And the whole place, all the way up to the front, got quiet. It wasn't a church. There's something about that song. Well, Amazing Grace was, you probably know, <laughs> written by John Newton. If you didn't, he was a slaver. He was a slave owner, or he was a slave trader. And then he gets saved. And you might think, well, he gets saved and says, wow, I can't believe you forgave me, God. I'm going to write a song. That's not how it happened. He gets saved, and for several years, he continues as a Christian to sell humans. To, to buy captured humans, transport them across the ocean, and sell them. So he's a Christian. He's a, he's a Christian human trafficker. <laughs> he's a born-again human trafficker. Until it hits him one day, dude, you can't do this. And he completely repents for what he's done. And sometime after that, he wrote Amazing Grace. Well, it is amazing when you think about it. I mean, John Newton, we hold him up as a hero. But think about what he used to do. But to make it easier, because John Newton is hard. He's even got like an old-timey cool name like Newton. Easy to confuse with Isaac Newton. How about David Berkowitz? You guys know who David Berkowitz is? In the late 1970s, I hear this sound. Some of you know. That's the sound you make if you know who he is. You'll see why. In the late 70s in New York City, this young man thought it would be cool to find strangers, hopefully young women, parked in cars and shoot them at random. Then leave a little note from the son of Sam. That's why he's the son of Sam killer. He ended up shooting 13, but only six died. He would later say his neighbor's dog was named Sam and that he was possessed by the devil and he told him to shoot people. Don't think it's true. He even would say later, after he was captured, that it's a good thing the cops caught him because he had a semi-automatic rifle and he was going to go into a nightclub and shoot it up. No one had thought of that yet. He was going to be the first. And the cops caught him right before that because of parking tickets. If he shot your sister, daughter, whatever, (laughs) your son, how easy would it be to forgive him? Would you want to see him in heaven? Well, he's going to be there. Go to his website. He's still in jail. David Berkowitz. Look it up. And if you read his testimonies and you watch his videos and don't believe you're, he's a Christian, I don't think anybody's a Christian. He's saved to the bone. That's amazing grace right there. God forgave him. God forgave him. It is to God's glory that John Newton and David Berkowitz are going to be in heaven. And that you are, and I am. It's easier for us to point the finger at some really bad people because then we don't feel so bad. But our wicked hearts, we too will be forgiven. It's always to God's glory. The greatness of sin caused by the penitent only declares the greatness of the sacrifice 
of the Christ. When people get baptized, it is every time a testament that the blood of Christ is still powerful enough to save a sinner. So, Paul says, should we sin so that grace may abound? Why don't we have more sinners? Why don't we have kill more people so that we can be saved and be more amazing? He rejects that idea with a question. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Which you might say, how does that answer the question? If someone says, oh, so you're a Christian now and you're saved by grace, you can just rob a bank. Your answer should be, should someone who's dead to sin rob banks? And they'd go, I don't know what he's talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? No, I think we had him in a corner and he snuck out. I don't know. I mean, he's nuts. But that's how Paul handles it. To someone who's dead, should they be out there sinning? Well, no, dead people should not be sinning, Paul. You see, for Paul, the question is not one of law. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. For him, it's a question of are you alive or are you dead? What he's doing is he's tackling the issue of whether it's okay for you to sin as a Christian by saying, are you alive or are you dead? Which is a strange way to tackle it. But this is where the meaning of baptism comes in. Why do we put people underwater when they become Christians? Why do that? Because they're dirty and we want to wash away their sins. No. Because they're dirty and we just want to wash under their arms and their hair. No. Forget the dirt part. The water is a symbol of death. The water, you break the plane of the water, it's like you shove someone right under a grave. Just see a headstone there, and you took someone, are you alive? Yeah, not now. You're dead. <laughs> Some people in the room say, I ain't getting baptized. <laughs> we let you up. <laughs> but, but the good part is, when you come out of the water, it's the same picture in reverse. It's resurrection. Right? Look at the text again. So you know I'm not making this up. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? His death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might... And then he doesn't say be raised from the dead, does he? He says walk in newness of life. We'll get to that. Now, water baptism symbolizes, let's keep it simple. What Paul is saying is when you receive Christ, you were baptized into the death of Christ. You don't get baptized into the death of Christ when you're baptized. When you believe in him, you're baptized into his death. So the water baptism is a symbol that shows that. Death to the old, up with the new. Jesus died in our place. Very important idea. He is our substitute. Here we can write down, he who knew no sin died in the place of those of us who sin. And spiritually we die with him. It's important that we fight for this because there are so-called preachers, I think they're false prophets, who would say that this is just a horrible, bloody picture of the atonement. How dare you say that God would substitute another person in my place? If I were a good, good father, and I had one child who misbehaved and one child who didn't, I would not spank the one who didn't misbehave. That's what they'd say. Is God cruel and unjust? 
those who say such things demonstrate that they do not know the Christ. He's, he is not unjust, he's just. And so he takes his innocent one and punishes them so the unjust one can be, go free. Right? That's called substitutionary atonement, atonement paying for sin. I know it's hard to understand. How could he, how could I die with him? How was he my substitute? How did I die with him? He was born 2,000 years before me. And I don't remember this. How many of you remember dying? None of you. Okay. If anyone raised your hand, you're lying. Or you shouldn't, you shouldn't have taken that and you're having a, you had a bad trip. Yeah. Something weird happened there. Don't go to the light. But the Bible, this, we got to take, let the Bible say what it says. It says you died. He died, you died. When you believed, you joined him in his death. Baptism in water is the grave. Likewise, Jesus rose and you rose. He rose and you rose. Ultimately, you're going to rise when the Lord comes back again. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air. You're going to have a new body. It's going to be really rocking cool. But he substituted his body for that to happen. Because right now, you don't have that new body. You look good. I mean, you look good to me, but it ain't the new body good. You're going to look really good. Ladies, no more having to mess with makeup. You're just going to look Look at my skin. It's great. Every day. But right now you might say, (laughs) I died with Christ, but I feel pretty much alive. And Paul is going to say to you, should we sin that grace may increase? No, because dead people don't sin. (laughs) Well, that's true. I've been to a lot of funerals and known people who were pretty sinful before they died. And once they were dead, they, they knocked it off, you know. They're not much fun to hang out with, but they don't mess with you anymore, you know. Dead people don't do bad things. So how can it be that you died or I died, but I'm still alive? The answer because I, the life that's in me is the life of Christ, spiritually. Not the physical animation of this tent, but the spiritual life in me is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. This is what he meant. You had to die to your old self, your old spirit, if you will, and you had to be born again. But it wasn't alone. It was a sharing. You have a new spirit and a new kind of life. He who lives forever raised us up with him so we can live forever. So you go down in the body, into the water, you're dead. You come out of the water, that symbolizes new life. But you died. A lot of us who go down the water and we get back up and behave, behave, you know, we do a lot to make sure you're saved these days before you put you in the water. We interview you. Sometimes years go by. People get saved. They wait years to be baptized. You know, when they first did this, the first church, the, the moment you said, I believe, okay, where's some water? And they dunked you. Do you think every one of those people truly believed? Of course not. There's always people who think, this sounds like a great idea, until they realize what it costs. And then they say, not mine. So they weren't really born again. So you can go in that water, come out of that water, 
and be the same. But if you really are dead to yourself and alive to Christ, it's going to show. How, how can this be? Did a miracle really happen in you? Let me risk a couple of illustrations just for our imagination's sake. Imagine you went back in time 2,000 years to the day of the crucifixion and somehow you are in Jesus' head. Now this is just your imagination so you're free to imagine it. You're looking at life through his eyes. You didn't take over his brain but you're, you're somehow in him. <laughs> and then they lay him on a cross and they beat the nails into him and you feel it. You go, ow! <laughs> and then a couple days later you get up with him and you went, wow, what was that? That didn't happen like that, but spiritually, that's what happened. That's what the Bible says. It's not a, he didn't die for you symbolically, I'm saying. He actually died for you, and when he died, you, that death was a plot. You actually died. Let me try another one. That was an easy illustration because he really died. Let me try one that's a little strange here. Imagine... You were once a fly's offspring. A house fly's offspring. You know what those are? Maggots. Maggots smell, don't they? You ever been around a bunch of maggots? Well, if you live in the south and you have to take out the trash, oh my word, it's always hot. And you get out there and you open the can and, oh, there's just, there's just, there's just like a whole population of these little white spaghetti looking Things just crawling all over each other and they stink their own unique stink. How many of you have ever smelled the stink of a whole village of maggots? If not, this summer when you're near some roadkill, go out and get as close as you can and get a good whiff. Because what they do, they get on yucky stuff, garbage and roadkill and they just, they, they, they love it. They, they love it. Right? It's like, it's like hundreds Hungry, hungry deer hunters, you know, at the all-you-can-eat buffet at the end of the day. You know, they, that's what maggots are like. They just go for that stuff. And Imagine you're a maggot. You were a maggot. How's that feel? You like dead things. But God loves you, so he grabbed you out of maggothood, and he changed you into a beautiful monarch butterfly. You know, you're this beautiful orange and black, you're like, I'm butterflying around. Right? And somebody says, well, since, since grace abounds, why not just sin? Okay, you're this beautiful butterfly, and instead of hanging out on these nice, clean flowers and flying around, really easy job, and you smell nice, and children love you, but since you're so erratic, they can't catch you, so you're safe. But instead, you fly down into those maggots, because you can remember being a maggot. Yeah, I remember being a maggot. I'm going to hang out with the maggots. These are my old buds. And, you, and so you're, they're on this dead stuff, stinking, and you're down there, your butterfly self, crawling around and eating disgusto stuff when you could be up in the sunshine on the flowers. You say, well, that's stupid. Monarch butterflies do not hang out with maggots. Okay, that's exactly Paul's answer to the question. That's exactly what he's saying. Why don't we sin that grace may abound? He says, because... You're alive to Christ. You don't crawl with the maggots anymore. 
That's how Paul answers the question. I remember being a maggot, but things have changed. I got wings now. I don't want to be a maggot anymore. That's why I don't rob banks. Now, this is Paul's argument put in strange words, I know, but let Paul speak for himself. 2 Corinthians 5.17, ready? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He was a maggot, now he's a butterfly. The old has passed away, the new has come. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. You have to say that for yourself, not for Paul. Can you say that for yourself? Will you say that for yourself? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer me who's alive, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Next week, we're going to deal with sanctification more deeply. We're just touching on it here. But I want you to note that our original text ends with we, the reason Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God that we might walk in newness of life. We share in his death, and we understand that. We had to die. But in his life, before he comes again, we're supposed to somehow walk, live by that good, righteous, Holy Spirit that's in us. But that's for next week. For now, that's the meaning of baptism. That's it. It's a one-time ritual that symbolizes a daily reality, not a one-time reality, a daily reality, that we walk in newness of life and leave sin behind. So when a person gets baptized, what they're saying is, I believe that the Christ has died for my sins, and now I believe my life ends. Every day of the rest, I am bought and purchased by God, and now I live for him by his power. That's what it means. That's what the symbol means. Let me deal with the practical concerns. That was a theological meaning. Here's the practical concerns. One, baptism is for believers. I've been baptized four times. (laughs) Yeah. The first time by, in the Roman church, all of us, both sides of my family, we got baptized in the Roman church as babies. We never went to the doggone church after that, unless you got married or died, or maybe to make communion. But besides that, you didn't have to go. It was really... I remember when I moved to Alabama, all my friends would go to the Baptist church. I went one time, two hours of dreadful boredom, wearing a leisure suit, no doubt, because it was the 70s. And I thought, man, I'm glad I'm a Catholic. We hardly ever have to go. And if we do, we're in and out in 45 minutes. Because my dad said, as soon as they give you the bread, you can sneak out during the last prayer. (laughs) You laugh, but there's legions like me. So that was my first time. My second time, I was, I was at a creation festival, and the guy, they said, if you believe Jesus, you'd be baptized. So I went in and got baptized. That was cool. But then I came back the next year, and I thought, I didn't even know what I was doing last year. I wonder if it counted, and I was worried. I bet that didn't count. God wasn't happy with that one. So I went in again. And I said, that's good. <laughs> I'm baptized enough. Well, then I moved to California and joined a Baptist church that had in its bylaws, you had to have been baptized by a Baptist. That's some pure Baptist right there. And it was like, who baptized you? He's like, I don't know, some guy with a beard in a lake. And that was back before beards were in, you know, there weren't many bearded people. So I thought, 
I actually, I went to the church. I said, I'm going to be baptized, but it doesn't count. He put me, I was like, this don't count, this don't count, this don't count. Okay, I don't care. But I could join the church. So that's four times. That's a little overkill. But that's the second part here. Baptism is a rite of passage for membership in the local church. It's what, you don't get baptized, you don't die and come into Christ and live by yourself and watch church on TV. You join a people. And this is the way in. Um, I have baptism, third, is symbolic of what Jesus did on the cross. I have friends who say that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. They're wrong. They're still my friends. They're just wrong. The guy on the cross wasn't baptized. He was saved. And they'd say, well, that was before Jesus died. He gets in. Okay, how about Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10 and 11? The Holy Spirit came on them, and seeing that they were saved, Peter said, well, we shouldn't deny them water when they already have the Holy Spirit. They already got the real thing. Give them the symbol. It's just a symbol. There are some people who say, well, to be in the church, you don't have to be a Catholic. You can still be baptized as a baby, and it counts. I would, I love my Presbyterian friends. They're the ones who mostly we're going to disagree with here. They're wrong on this. <laughs> I could put it gently. It's like, well, you may be Presbyterian, you may be this. Look, if you're a Presbyterian, you're a good Christian brother, and I'm not trying to get you out of that church. But if you want to talk about this issue, I'm going to tell you, you're wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> and you can, <laughs> that's just it. The, the idea there is, what they'd say is, and, and I'm not belittling it. Like I said, I love my Presbyterian friends. What they would argue is that baptism is a sign of the covenant like circumcision was to the Jews. So you baptize the baby to show that he's a part of the covenant family. They would not say he's saved, though. They would just say he still needs to receive Christ for himself, but he receives the blessing of being part of the covenant family just like being a male Jew and is born. And, and the, the biggest problem with that is the Bible is clear that there is no longer any more circumcision. The second biggest problem is that there's zero examples in the Bible of that kind of theology. The third problem with that is every example in the Bible is a believer gets baptized. And I say that not because I want to pick on Presbyterians, but you might be one or might have been one, and you're wondering, what should I do? I would say, as a believer, go get baptized. You say, well, I don't want to make my Presbyterian parents mad. Two baptisms is better than one. What you don't want to do is disobey your conscience. Uh, um, So that's why I point that out. Finally, baptism is expected norm for all believers, not optional. I I know Christians say, I I knew I should get baptized, I just didn't want to get around to it. That's probably the church's fault. By the church, I mean me and the churches collectively of Christendom. We don't talk about baptism much and we don't make it a rite of passage. For us, the rite of passage is praying something we call the sinner's prayer. If you receive Jesus into your heart. And there's nothing in the Bible that says that's a rite of passage. What the rite of passage is receiving Christ or being born again. But that's kind of an invisible thing. A baptism is a visible thing. Somebody has to administer it. Normally people are around and they're excited about it and they want to do it. (laughs) And so that's why you do it. So if you're not baptized and you are a believer, we are happy to make that happen. If we can't make it happen at one of our regularly scheduled baptism services in the winter or the summer, we will go out of our way to find another way. An indoor pool, if you're really gutsy in February, 
an outdoor pool. <laughs> and I think if you got the guts, don't worry, your campus pastor has the guts too. And I'll stand there with a towel outside. So if you know, hey, I haven't been baptized, it's not a bad thing, it's a joyous thing. I do want to throw in a couple other things. One, I've known someone who has phobic of water that I baptized. And it took her a while. But you know what? It was okay because she was honest. She came and said, hey, I know God wants me to do this, but I'm really afraid of being immersed in water. Well, you don't have to be judged for that. We all have these weird fears we have to fight in life. And so that's okay. Go tell your campus pastor and let him start praying with you. And when you're ready... He can get you in there um, and maybe take some precautions with you. You know, maybe someday when you, after you have surgery and they give you a lot of painkillers, that'll be the day. <laughs> You're on them anyway. Let's get in there. <laughs> but the baptism isn't as important as what it symbolizes. So I'd urge you, first of all, make up your mind that you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. I know it's a fight we have to fight every day. That's okay. We fight it every day. But make up your mind you belong to Christ. That what he did on that cross was for you and with you. (laughs) Though you didn't have to feel the pain in your hands when he felt that he took it for you because he loves you. And when he rose, he rose for you. And one day you're going to know the true joy of that. But even now you have the Holy Spirit. right? And and if you want to be baptized, sign on your Connect card and we'll make sure it happens. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.